As we prepare to read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn again to the Lord in prayer, asking God to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, send us your spirit, we pray. That as your word is read and proclaimed, that we would hear with joy what you have to say to us this day. Guide us by your spirit. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Scripture passage this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, through his church. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Icanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before, and these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now to him who loves us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Luke starts chapter 6 saying, now in these days, signaling a shift to something new. But Luke intends for this to be read within the context of the events he has just shared with us. So in what days is he referring here? Well, in the days in which the apostles were preaching the gospel of Jesus, undeterred from any opposition, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And it's in this context that Luke tells us here in verse 1 of chapter 6 that the church is continuing to grow on account of the apostles' persistence in their ministry, in their faithfulness and boldness in the proclamation of God's word. The church was continuing to grow. But as the church grows, a problem arises. Luke tells us that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what is that all about? Well, we need a little background information here. The church was filled with what we could call Jewish 
Christians. They were believers who had come from the Jewish faith and still considered themselves to be Jews, but that doesn't mean that the church was a homogeneous unit. There were subgroups within the church in Jerusalem, particularly based on language and culture. There were the Hebrew Jews whose roots had been in the region of Palestine and in Jerusalem for generations, whose culture was native to that region and who spoke Aramaic. There were also those who were called Hellenist here. They were Jews who were from outside of Palestine, probably due to the diaspora, who had returned to Jerusalem from Greek-speaking regions. These Jews spoke Greek and had been influenced by Greek culture. Now, it is known that there was cultural tension between these two groups, as you might imagine. And unfortunately, it appears that this tension, at least in some ways, has carried over into the new Christian community. What is at issue here specifically is that the Hellenist widows felt neglected within this new community. We understand that widows in this context relied heavily on the community to support them if they had no family to care for them. Since women did not work outside the home, this neediness for the Hellenist widows then would probably have been amplified to some degree. These were women who more than likely had returned to Jerusalem with their husbands in old age, hoping to live out the rest of their lives in the Holy Land, to die in the Holy Land and be buried there. They had outlived their husbands, though, and now they were in this place away from their families and communities in which they had lived most of their lives. However, following God's expressed instruction in the Old Testament to care for and defend widows and orphans and aliens, those who are most vulnerable in society— It was the Jewish practice to provide meals and money to those in need. There were systems in place for this support to occur. And the church had evidently followed this same practice in their community. Not only did the church desire to care for its members, but those in the Christian community probably did not have good standing within the larger Jewish community, especially these Hellenist Jews. So there was some necessity here as well to care for its own who were very likely being ostracized from the larger community. Luke tells us here, though, that unfortunately in the rapid growth of the church, this particular group was being overlooked in this distribution. There's no indication, by the way, that this oversight was intentional, but nonetheless, This was a very unfortunate situation. And these Hellenist Jews were probably very sensitive to the tension between them and the Hebrew Jews. This group, which might have already felt that they were not valued, had now been overlooked, which added fuel to the fire. Are you getting the picture? It would seem that the real problem here, though, was one of administration. And if we think about it, this sort of... Thing has the potential to happen in any local body of believers as it grows, doesn't it? It isn't unusual for a growing community to experience challenges caused by growth. 
As a community grows, so do the complexities of life together, and the community must seek to respond and adapt to these complexities. Our congregation, for instance, has increased pretty significantly over the past 10 years. Praise be to God. And even as we've been blessed with great unity of mind and spirit, we have faced some challenges. We can't operate as a 50-member congregation anymore or even a 150-member congregation anymore, right? Adjustments have to be made to accommodate a larger community. And it wasn't just a larger sanctuary that we needed. More organization and ministry support have been needed as we have grown. This is why I was called to serve this congregation. It's why we've added more officers over the past few years. It's why we are in the process right now of restructuring committees and making sure that these committees are functional. As the church grows in number, there are aspects of the church's life that have to adjust. The challenge, though, is to do this without losing focus on what is important primarily the centrality of the gospel and its proclamation. If this is lost, then so is the church. And so, this is a challenge here in Acts. It isn't just the proclamation of the gospel that's at stake here, though. The unity in the body of believers and the love and care for each other in the community expressed in tangible ways which we have seen as hallmarks of this early Christian community in chapters 2 and 4, also has become threatened. So we don't want to miss that this was most certainly an opportunity for the church community to begin to crumble, for divisions to grow among them, for community to no longer give witness to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their midst. This was an opportunity for people to get their feelings hurt, to become angry with one another, to allow cultural differences between them, to put a wedge between them, to begin to attribute the actions or inactions of others to ill intent. And you can hear it, right? Well, we aren't getting our daily rations because they are prejudiced against us. They really don't care for us. If Satan can't destroy the community from outside through persecution, he will work to destroy it from within. And what Luke tells us here very much indicates that this danger was very real in this particular case. The text indicates that this group of widows were very upset and had begun to grumble. This is what the word in verse 1 translated as complaint reveals. It carries with it a negative connotation in the Greek. This is a Greek word for what the Jewish people were doing against Moses during the Exodus. They were murmuring against him. And it's made abundantly clear in Scripture that this was not a good thing. It had no place among the people of God in the Old Testament. It has no place for those in the Christian community either. This is why the Apostle Paul instructs the church in Philippi to do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The gospel had been going forth up to this point in Acts. People were repenting of their sins and coming to faith in Jesus Christ in the masses. Believers were living boldly in the face of persecution. There was unity and generosity among the believers. And then one group started to feel neglected. And they began complaining. And just like that, the whole thing was at risk. Grumbling and complaining in the church is a quick way for fellowship to be destroyed. There is a godly way to resolve issues which are bound to arise. It isn't with grumbling and complaining, though. So what happens here? The apostles found themselves faced with a very genuine problem that had enormous potential to cause harm to the community of faith. And they immediately responded with godly wisdom and sensitivity. Luke tells us that they gathered all the disciples together, all of the church. They called a congregational meeting and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men who are of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this passage is widely considered to give witness to the creation of the office of deacon within the church of Jesus Christ. And while we don't see the specific noun for deacon, diakonos, in the Greek, in this passage, as we will see later in the New Testament, we do see the root word for deacon appear several times, twice in the first two verses, as a matter of fact. We find it in the word distribution. This word comes from the Greek word meaning to serve or to minister. We see it again by the mention of serving tables. So if this event wasn't outright creating the office of deacon, then it was certainly creating the precedent. There was a division of responsibility being created here in which the diaconate was created for administrative tasks in the community to support the pastoral ministry of the church by serving and caring for the outward and physical concerns in the life of the faith community. And it's very, very important that we understand here the principles which God's word is laying out for us concerning the functioning and organization of God's church. I want to offer three principles this morning, all of which remain as important today as they were 2,000 years ago. These principles ensure the centrality of the gospel and the working out of God's mission in and through the church. So first, first, we need to understand the importance of calling to specific ministries. The apostles had found that they were increasingly having to attend to these sort of pressing needs within the life of the church. And this was a tremendous problem because their attention had been diverted away from the things that they had been called and gifted to do specifically. The spread of God's word was a calling that the Lord Jesus Christ had given to them. They were to teach God's word, to share the gospel in a way that created and built up disciples. 
A few of them would be the ones who would be inspired by the Holy Spirit and used to write the New Testament of God's holy word. It required them to spend not only time teaching and preaching and writing, but also studying and continuing to learn and grow in God's word as they sought to bring themselves ever more under its authority and power. It's also noted here the ministry of the word was coupled with prayer. Now we see the importance of prayer in scripture. Prayer is not only vital for relationship with God and for growing a heart attuned to God's leading in which desires what God desires, things that are imperative in the leaders of God's people. But it's also something we see the leaders of God's people doing for those they shepherd. We see it with Moses, who is constantly interceding before the Lord on behalf of the people. The prophet Samuel took it seriously enough to tell the people of God, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And obviously, Jesus, whose scripture tells us spent a great deal of time in prayer, is the primary model for us. He not only seeks relationship with his heavenly father and his will through prayer, but we find him praying for his followers. We find this in his great priestly prayer in John's gospel. We also find it when he tells Peter that Satan had asked to sift him as wheat. And Jesus says to him, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. A prayer then is inseparable from the ministry of the word which the apostles had been called to. The ministry of the word, if it is to bear fruit, requires prayer. So I think we can pretty easily understand the importance of this ministry of prayer and ministry of the word and the need for this ministry to be protected against distraction. But the apostles had found themselves spending more and more time trying to manage and distribute all of these funds and resources that we've been told previously are being laid at their feet. And it wasn't that those who had bodily needs were unimportant. Caring for the needy is a very, very important ministry in the life of the church. So please don't misinterpret what is happening here and what is being communicated. The apostles are not in any way saying that these tasks were somehow beneath them. That isn't it at all. The reality is that the apostles only had 24 hours in a day like the rest of us. If they spent their time attending to these physical and material needs that were arising as the body of believers grew, then they would have to cease from their work of prayer and the teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, which is what Luke has just told us at the end of chapter 5, is what they had been intentional to not stop doing. Remember, their persistence in this ministry is what had resulted in more and more believers being added to their number. So they are not, so they are saying here it is not right for them to cease doing this, meaning that it would be disobeying God to pivot from or lose focus on what he had called them primarily to do. So don't read into this text that the ministry of caring for the physical needs of the congregation was unimportant 
or somehow a lesser task. It certainly was not. It was following in the way of Jesus himself, in fact, who came not to be served, but to serve, and who taught his disciples that the greatest in his kingdom were not the ones who lorded it over others, but those who served others. So those who were being called to this task of serving tables here in Acts 6 were being called to follow in the way of Jesus himself. So again, ministering to the physical needs of the congregation was not a lesser calling than what the apostles were called to do. It's very simply a different calling. It was all vital ministry in the life of the church, as the passage seeks to demonstrate. The full ministry of the church requires these various callings. In fact, what this passage reveals to us is that no one believer is called or gifted to do it all. There are varied callings. And the church becomes impoverished if believers are frequently doing more than what they have been called to do, and or if believers are not using their gifts for the ministry they have been called to do. In this case, the apostles are doing something poorly. That's what the text is saying, because they've been stretched too thin. The ministry to widows suffers because there are others who have more adequate gifts in time for that ministry. And the ministry of the word begins to suffer because the apostles are no longer committed wholeheartedly to it. So do you see the problem? You with me? Unfortunately, too many are under the impression that ministry is something reserved for church professionals. Ministry is something ministers are called to do. They are the ones, after all, who are called into the ministry. They are the ones who are paid to do ministry. This very idea that some are called into ministry and the rest are not is a very harmful understanding of the ministry of the church, though. It's one that I hope does not exist among us. Dearly beloved, the ministry of the church is shared by all believers, Again and again, we're told in the New Testament that we all have various gifts given by the Holy Spirit and various callings based on our gifts. And here's the thing. If any of us neglects the gifts God has given to us, if any one of us fails to carry out our specific calling for ministry, then the church is impoverished by that amount. And as others try to make up the slack, the church becomes even further impoverished as the primary callings of those individuals get neglected. Now, that doesn't mean that any callings are ever so specialized as to exclude other aspects of ministry. We're going to see in the next few chapters these newly installed deacons also spreading God's word in preaching. We're going to see the apostles throughout Scripture serving in physical ways. Paul says as much in Acts 20, describing his own ministry. However, this passage is emphasizing the importance of primary focus, of keeping first things first, of not being distracted from that focus in a way that compromises our individual calling. 
And so it wasn't that apostles, the apostles despised serving the widows. It was simply that they recognized the need to stay in their own lane, as it were, in terms of gifting and calling. They weren't meant to do it all. Now, obviously, the role of apostle was a specific one that carried responsibilities that are not repeated throughout the history of the church. They were to bear eyewitness account to the risen Lord Jesus Christ to spread the gospel. No one beyond them could do this. Further, the canon of Scripture is now closed. No one today is writing new books of the Bible. But there are those who are still called to prayer and the ministry of the Word. There are those who are called to continue to preach and teach God's Word as it is given to us by the apostles. And this, too, is an office we find in the early church. It's the office of elder which reaches all the way back into the Old Testament and which we carry forward in the church today. And so we shouldn't miss that there is a clear message here about the primary focus of that office. Elders in the church today should still be free to focus on this calling. But they can only do that if everyone else is attentive to their particular callings. And as we think about callings, we should recognize here that we should never view the office of deacon or any calling as some sort of lesser office. I've already said this in ways, but let me be clear. Acts 6 is not creating some hierarchy of spiritual elitism with apostles and elders at the top. Unfortunately, some have considered the office of deacon as a stepping stone of sorts to the office of elder. It's simply wrong. It's unbiblical. It's an unbiblical view of these offices. As one Christian author states, deaconing is not training wheels for elders. It is a different office with different aims, requiring, in many cases, different gifts. To take just one example, a man could lack the ability to teach and therefore be unfit for eldership and yet, nonetheless, be a truly remarkable, spectacular deacon. So what is established here in Acts 6 is a plurality of leadership within the church. And this is a wonderful thing because, again, no one person has every spiritual gift and is meant to fulfill every calling. Next, the second principle we find in this passage is related to the qualifications for the office of deacon. There are three of these listed in verse three. Pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We should immediately notice what it is that qualifies someone for this office. Is it based on skill set or ability? No. Nothing is mentioned of being business savvy or handy. It isn't one's ability to create a spreadsheet or work a chainsaw. What are the qualifications here? Good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. What is listed here as qualifications relate to spiritual maturity and Christian character. So isn't this curious The problem was that widows needed to be cared for. But notice what the apostles didn't say. Okay, well, then find those who have experience waiting tables. 
find those who have experience caring for the elderly. No. Again, the focus is on finding those who are spirit-filled, mature in the faith. The point here is it doesn't matter what worldly skills the person has if the person is not first mature in faith and filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the church should not function like a secular business ever. Now, Paul will later lay out the qualifications for deacons in a fuller way in his first letter to Timothy. In chapter 3, after laying out the qualifications for elders, he states, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Like elders, they are also called to manage their households well. And by the way, the qualifications for elders are very, very similar with one of the primary differences being, surprise, surprise, that elders must be able to teach. Paul tells Timothy, an overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, it's important to see here that these qualifications for elders and deacons do not describe some special class of Christian. As we look at these qualifications for both offices, we should realize that it wouldn't be acceptable, according to God's holy word, for anyone who claims to follow Jesus Christ to be a drunkard or a cheat or a liar or greedy or violent or lacking self-control. The qualifications then are what every follower of Jesus Christ should strive toward. But those who hold office in the church of Jesus Christ should exemplify what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. They should be setting an example in godliness that all believers can follow. And we will see that this is the case here, at least in those of the seven whom we will come to know more about in later chapters. Finally, the third principle we need to see here is that it was the congregation who was selecting these individuals. There's great wisdom to this. Not because the Holy Spirit works by 51% majority vote of the congregation. That isn't it. But because it recognizes and encourages a plurality of leadership. It understands that no one person has all the gifts required for ministry. It understands that there is wisdom in community discernment. It also encourages that the various differences that might be found within a body, whether that be socioeconomic or cultural or whatever it may be, find representation within the officers of the church. 
we see here that all of these names listed are Greek names. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of these men were Greek-speaking Jews, although they could have been. We do know that at least a few of them were. Nicholas was a convert to Judaism. Stephen's ministry was in a Hellenistic synagogue. Regardless, it makes a great deal of sense that if there were an issue in Greek speaking with, with the Greek-speaking Jews, that the Greek-speaking Jews would be chosen to represent them and to serve them. The polity of the Presbyterian church is modeled on what is given to us here in the New Testament. The congregation is responsible for electing officers. You, the congregation, make recommendations for the offices of deacon and elder based on biblical qualifications. Here at Covenant, the nominating committee, a group which represents you, the congregation, discuss these recommendations, they pray over them, and then they present back to you a slate of individuals for these offices who you then vote to approve or not. No officer is ordained and installed here that is not approved through vote by you. And I hope that one thing that we see from this passage is that this is a very serious process. It's not to be taken lightly. It creates organizational leadership in the church that promotes the mission given to us by God. And so as we approach this process each year, and we're about to begin it here in short order, we should be reminded that it needs to be done according to the principles given to us here. And in places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, if we are to be a church grounded in God's word, we should take note that the Greek-speaking Jews would have been a minority group within the early church, and yet there were Greek-speaking Jews chosen in this group. It teaches us that selecting church officers is not a popularity contest. It's not based on simply who wants to serve. It's not based on who we might think would be willing to serve. It's not based on who might have the professional experience to manage the church. It's also not based on trying to avoid hurting anyone's feelings. And dearly beloved, it's based on taking an honest look at our fellow church members and asking who fits these qualifications given to us in God's holy, inerrant, infallible word? Who has evidenced being mature in the faith and filled with the Holy Spirit? Who has led their family with spiritual wisdom and discipled their children? Who has repeatedly demonstrated within the life of the congregation a commitment to the body of Christ through service, through teaching, through care of fellow church members, through giving, through prayer. These and only these are the ones you are called to elect. And by God's grace, the church will have success as the church did in Acts. Look at the result when the ministry of the word went unhindered and believers used their gifts for ministry. It resulted in God's word going forth in remarkable growth in the church. Luke tells us that the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This even included some unlikely converts. As Luke tells us that a great many priests became obedient to the faith. It was to God's glory. 
And may it also be so among us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for various gifts and various callings within your church. Help us to discern our gifts, to answer the calling for ministry you have bestowed on each of our lives. And may it be used to give glory to your name and advance your kingdom here on earth. May our greatest passion be for the spreading of your gospel. May all we do be for the promotion of the gospel. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the word of God, let us now stand and affirm what we believe. Saying together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God. 